Here we go. Last time you'll see that video, we're ending the teaching series this weekend. This is the grand finale. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 21. Unstoppable Force has been our teaching series. We've been working our way through 1 Timothy, and we're talking about the church, what a healthy church looks like. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's us. And we have learned and we are continuing to learn uh, how to be all that Christ has died to make us as his people and as his church. Let me uh, do a quick summary of where we've been in this teaching uh, thus far. And uh, the church and its message, we looked at that the first two weekends as we looked at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Doctrine Matters and the glorious gospel. And then we looked at the church and its members, that was chapter two, praying people and man and womanhood. And then chapter three, dedicated leaders and then healthy believers. And then we looked at the church and its ministers, that's all of us actually, detect error, that was chapter four, detect error, declare truth. And then we looked at the church and its ministries, and chapter 5 was love like family. And then chapter 6, the first part of that we talked about last week, be content in God. And now this weekend, fight the good fight is where we have landed as we end the study through this book. And so ministries here at Desert Breeze should be about loving like family, teaching each other how to be content in God, and then how to fight the good fight. Take a look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. There is a violent side to living the Christian life. That may shock you, but it's true. There's a violent side to living the Christian life. Spiritual growth is not for the timid. You must not only aggressively nurture a heart for Jesus, but also a hatred towards sin. The only possible attitude towards sin is a declaration of all-out war. Now, this may sound a little harsh here, but let me speak straight with you this morning. Stop bellyaching about your struggles with sin and your difficulties. Make war. Whatever it is you're struggling with, don't complain, don't blame shift, don't make excuses anymore. You've got to make war. You've got to make war against it. I gave you a list of things maybe you struggle with here, so don't just bellyache about your struggles with sin, such as pride, anger, envy, lust, gluttony, slothfulness. By the way, that's the seven deadly sins right there. And then I added a few more, worry, fear, bitterness, depression, discontentment, and then you can add your own list there, whatever that might be. But we're going to learn how to make war against those things that are getting the best of us in our lives. February the 5th, 2019 of this year, February the 5th, trail runner kills mountain lion with bare hands after it attacks him. Anybody remember the story? Colorado Department of Parks and Wildlife confirmed the man's story. At a press conference, Travis Kaufman, 31, described his experience. I ended up hearing some pine needles rustle and a stick break, and I turned around <laughs> and was pretty bummed out to see a mountain lion chasing after me. I would be more than bummed out, wouldn't you? <laughs> I, 
I would wet my pants. And uh, so I, just, I found it kind of humorous. He said, I was pretty bummed out. Yeah. Okay. Kaufman said the mountain lion locked onto his hand and wrist and began to claw him across the face and neck. Kaufman went on to recount how he wrestled with the cat and tried hitting it with a rock before finally managing to get a foot on its neck and strangle it dead so that it would let go of him. Interesting story. I think it's a great illustration of what we need to do with the sin in our lives. Genesis 4, 7, God says to Cain before he murders Abel, listen to what he says, sin is crouching at your door. Very descriptive words. It desires is against you. It's coming after you. It's coming after you, but you must rule over it. So very, very vivid words, very descriptive words, great analogy. Sin is crouching at your door, wanting to come after you, to destroy you, to take you out, but you must take it out. Yeah. Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body, put to death sin, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So here's the three questions we're looking at from our text. What is this fight? What is this fight? Why should we fight, and then how, how do we fight? That's where we're headed. Let's pray before we read our text and unpack our notes here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Take a moment, ask for God's help. So Father God, our, our adoption into your family is the highest privilege of the gospel. That we, as traitors, are forgiven brought in for supper, and given the family name. That is absolutely amazing. This immediate status change by grace through faith in Christ puts us at war with our sinful passions, legions of hell, and the values of this world. So we pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, teach us what, why, and how to fight the good fight of faith keeping us from becoming casualties of this spiritual war, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let me read the text. As I read through the text, you're going to want to keep your Bibles open because I'm going to refer back to it as we work through our notes. But this is where we wrap up our study through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The things he's talking about here is what we just talked about is uh, covetousness. And, and basically, it's just loving anything more than you love God. That's what he's saying. Flee from those things. And then he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and sovereign, only sovereign, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. So take a look at your notes there. So first of all, fight the good fight of faith. Let's define the word fight. As I said last week, if you want to find out what these words mean, go to, your, go to studylight.org, and they'll give you the, both the Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament definition of these words as you work through them. The word fight here, so we've got to get a sense of what this means. Fight the good fight of faith. The word fight in the Greek is agonizomai. That's the transliteration. And we get our word agonize from that. So it means to contend with adversaries, to endeavor with strenuous zeal, to make every effort by laboring fervently and earnestly to obtain something. So think of soldiers on the battlefield or Olympic athletes in the summer games or even some of those pictures that we saw in our intro video of those football players. There's, a, there's this agonizing, striving, contending, and uh, that's the idea. So what are, we, what are we striving for? What are we earnestly seeking to obtain? Well, what is this fight about? Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Here, let me give you the, uh, the first couple fill in the blanks. It is a fight to see. Here's where the fight is. It is a fight to see, savor, and show. So it's to see it, see it with our spiritual eyes, to savor it, to enjoy it, to experience it, and then to display it, put it, put it on display through our life to show that Jesus is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away. We talked about that. We, I used that statement last weekend. So it's to see, savor, and show that Jesus is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away. Let me, let me prove you that from Scripture, okay? Because it, it, you shouldn't care anything about what I have to say. You should care everything about what the Bible has to say. So let me explain this from Scripture. Let me prove this from Scripture, this, this thing that we are fighting for. And uh, you guys are familiar with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the what? The glory of God. What is the glory of God? Weight, significance, importance. That he is more desirable, more satisfying than anything in life. We have fallen short of that. We look to created things as being more desirable and satisfying than the creator. That's, and so the Bible immediately levels the playing field for all of us. That's the condition of all of us. And in fact, Romans 1 
25 explains what that is, falling short of the glory of God, is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. That's our spiritual condition. And so that's the fight, that's the battle. The battle is for what controls our heart. What are we gonna give our our deepest loyalties and affections to? Is it gonna be a created thing or the creator? That's the daily battle of our lives. And when we love anything more than we love God, that that thing, whatever it is, will control us. It will control us when we seek it. It will disappoint us when we get it. It will devastate us when we lose it because it's a temporal. It's a temporal thing. Now, what this often is in our lives is that it's not, such, it's not bad things. It can be very good things that have, we've turned into ultimate things in our life. It could be a marriage. It can be family or how our kids turn out or getting a job or having enough money in the bank to, to afford a house or any number of things. But, but when we begin to love those things more than we love God, we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. We are worshipers by nature. And in fact, Jeremiah 2.13 kind of explains what has happened in our hearts. In Jeremiah 2.13, the prophet is, is really speaking in behalf of God, and he says, for my people, that's us, for my people have committed two evils. So he's saying, this is what's evil. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug out cisterns or wells, broken cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. Let me paraphrase that. So here's, here's what we do. This is what sin looks like. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for broken cisterns that ultimately are going to let us down. And, and having a, a cistern, having a well is a good thing. It can be a good thing. But the thing is, is that we try to get our sense of meaning, hope, and happiness from that good thing. Ultimately, it's going to devastate us. It's going to let us down. And the Bible says that's evil. That's evil. And we all do it. Everyone here, we all tend to do that. And that's where the battle is. John 6.35, one of my list of favorites This is what Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Do you hear what he's saying? By the way, that's not just a one-time coming to him. Oh, yeah, I made a commitment of my life to Jesus. No, 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 no. This is present, active, indicative. This is an ongoing coming to him daily. This is what he's saying. Whoever comes to me time and time again, I am the bread of life. I am your source of satisfaction. And if you keep coming to me time and time again, I will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's what he's saying. It only can be found in me. Now, a great example of this would be found in um, Psalm 51. Remember King David when he, what did he do? He he messed up pretty big. Uh, He committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, and then really betrayed the whole nation, confronted by, by the prophet. And uh, this is his repentant psalm. And in that repentant psalm, Psalm 51, verse 12, he says, he prays this, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now think about this. He didn't sin and lose the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. You guys following me? That's, that's 
always what happens. Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. We are convinced inside that I'm going to be happier by pursuing something that's outside of God's directives, his rules, and outside of who God is and what he says is in my best interest. That's what sin is. Sin is, is being dissatisfied with God, thinking that somehow I'm going to be happier by pursuing other things. And so this battle, listen to me, listen, it is a fight you must fight every day. I know as a pastor, I have to fight it every day to find my deepest delight in him because my heart is, a, is an idle factory. I'm constantly looking for things that will substitute for God, and you won't find those things in creation. It's only in the creator. It is a fight to see, savor, and to show that Jesus is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away. And in fact, you probably hear me say something similar to that every week because we need that every week, every day. And in fact, when I do my devotions every day, that's what I'm trying to do. I am fighting for my joy in him. And that's the most protective thing I can do for my heart. Now, why should we fight? Why should we fight? This is from the broader context of Scripture. Why should we fight? Because the enemy is powerful. 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. So be self-controlled and alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Maybe you heard the story this last week. Don't be like the woman that was in the story this last week who was attacked by a jaguar at a Phoenix zoo trying to take a selfie. Did you guys hear this story? So she jumped over the barrier, got over the barrier, and was up against the, I guess, the uh, cage or the whatever, the fence or whatever. Hey, kitty, 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 come over here. And so I can take a selfie. You can take a selfie with me. And, the, and the, I guess the, the jaguar reached through and did a number on her. And that's, that's oftentimes how we kind of are with our adversary. Satan aims to defame God's glory, distort God's word, and destroy God's people. He wants to destroy your relationships, abolish your purity, attack your integrity, and at all cost keep you from enjoying the riches of God's glory and contagiously spreading the gospel. Listen to me, Christian. You are no match for him but he is no match for your God who dwells within you. Don't ever forget that. And so, so the first thing, the enemy is powerful. The second one is the scope is universal. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to the people around you and just discuss this. You actually have three enemies. What are those three enemies? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Three enemies. Okay, right over here, what are you guys saying? Uh, what's one of those enemies? Yell it out to me. Society. Society, yeah, the culture, our culture, the values of our culture. Oh, my goodness. The values of our culture are completely contrary to the things of, of God's word and who God is. How about this section? Give this another. Self, self yeah, sinful, sinful nature. We're born with a sinful nature. We're sinners by nature and by choice. Okay, we got one more. What is it? Satan, yeah, we've got an adversary. 
than an adversary. In fact, it tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, sins. And then it goes on and, and lists those three enemies that we have, Satan, self, and society. And then it ends by saying this, that because of all of this, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The scope is universal. Like like the rest of mankind, it's all over this planet. Everybody on this planet is in war against their sinful nature, society, the values of the world, and our adversary, the devil. The next one is the stakes are eternal. So the enemy is powerful, the scope is universal, the stakes are eternal. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not what? Perish. Did you, do you remember reading that? Perish? So that you would not perish, but have everlasting life. You, you really only have two choices. You can either perish or you're going to have everlasting life, and that everlasting life comes through Jesus. Jesus was talking here. So you're either on the road to perishing or you're on the road to everlasting life or eternal life. Eternal life is more than a quantity of life. It's a quality of life also. And, uh, and so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not perish, but have everlasting life. The stakes are eternal. Eternal life, eternal death. Those are the only choices we have. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Here's the next one. The involvement is inevitable for all of us. And so the enemy is powerful, the scope is universal, the stakes are eternal. I probably shouldn't even move on from that eternal, and we need to probably let that land on us just a moment. Eternal, eternal. When you exit this place, you're not coming back. I mean, it's for eternity. And you've, you've kind of sealed your fate based on the decision you make for or against Christ. The Bible's clear about that. You're either going to perish or you're going to have eternal life. Okay, let's go to the next one. But uh, <laughs> the involvement is in inevitable for everyone. First Peter 2.11, Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's talking about our sinful nature. That's why it's so crazy in our culture today. We say, follow your heart, be true to yourself. Woo, that's scary. He's saying passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That wage war against your soul. That's for all of us. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. The word resist means put up a fight. Put up a fight. Stop taking it. Stop laying down and just taking it. Get up and fight is what he says. You gotta fight. You gotta go against those things that are coming after you. You have to fight the good fight of faith. That's why he's ending this letter to Timothy with these words, very important words for us. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Second Corinthians, it's not on your notes. We talked about it back during detect error. Second Corinthians 4, 4, it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So if you're an unbeliever, you can't make heads or tails out of this whole idea of desiring and finding my satisfaction in Jesus, that seems weird. That doesn't make any sense because you have to have your eyes opened, your spiritual eyes open to see that, 
to want that. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then what does he do? So if he does that to unbelievers, blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, what does he do to believers? 2 Corinthians 11.3, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, he says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ, that you would find something else in this world is more desirable and satisfying than Christ. And you can be led astray by him in that. That's, why that's where the fight is. So, so how do we fight? How do we fight? If you're going to win this fight, you must be proactive, not reactive. You must be proactive, not reactive. When you think of being proactive, think thermostat. When you think of reactive, think thermometer, okay? Now turn to the po- folks sitting around you. I want you to discuss that a little bit. So what does that mean to be proactive versus reactive, and then kind of try to decide which do you tend to fall prey to? Or I mean, which, which one? Are you a proactive person or are you a reactive person? I can, I'm, I'll be honest here. For many years, I've, I tend to be very reactive, and I've learned through the years to be more proactive, but I, I struggled with reactive, uh, reacting to the situation and all that was going on. So what's the difference between the two? If you're going to win the battle, you've got to be proactive, not reactive. What is it? Discuss it with the folks sitting around you, and I'll give you some answers here in just a moment. Okay, here we go. Proactive, reactive, proactive. This is, this is part of maturity. As we grow, we begin to become more proactive rather than reactive. Reactive people blame circumstances, conditioning. Conditioning has to do with, you know, how I was raised. And then chromosomes. So uh, reactive people tend to blame circumstances, conditioning, chromosomes for their problems. Proactive people don't deny the influence of circumstances and conditioning and chromosomes, but they realize that those things, though they influence them, they don't control them. They do not control me because I'm taking responsibility. I'm exercising responsibility for my life. The word responsibility is a a beautiful word. If you take the tail end of that word, the, the back end of the word, and put it in the front, you've got ability to choose your response. God has given that to you. And so as you begin to choose your response, this is what happens is that reactive people, their behavior is the product of feelings based on circumstances. So that's reactive people. Behavior is the product of feelings based on the circumstances, the highs and lows of circumstances, their feelings. Proactive people, their behavior is the product of choices based on their values, regardless of their circumstances. So here's what this means, and and now we go back to our text. And so how to fight, how do we fight? Live in pursuit of eternal life. I'm gonna be proactive. I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna get involved in the battle here. 
So live in pursuit of eternal life. Verses 11 and 12, listen to what he says. But as for you, O man, flee these things, the things were covetousness, loving anything more than you love God. But notice that. He doesn't just say, stop, stop, you know, run from these things. But then he says, you need to pursue other things. That's when life change is really happening. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and then take hold of the eternal life. I think that's what he's saying. Live in pursuit of eternal life to which you were called. You were invited. You heard the voice of God and you said, yes, your eyes were open to how desirable and satisfying he is. And so you responded to that call. That's what he's saying here. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What, what is that? I think that's, that's Timothy's uh, public declaration of his faith through water baptism. He says, I'm making a public declaration of my faith and I'm identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, substitutionary atonement. It's, it's absolutely beautiful what he's saying here. But he's saying, Timothy, live in pursuit of eternal life. And he's actually telling us what repentance is. This is what repentance is. Repentance is turning from sin to the Savior. Quit trying to get from the things of this world, created things, what you should be getting from the Creator whether it's marriage, your kids, job, because ultimately you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. You're trying to get from that what you should be getting from the Creator. So flee those things. Don't make those things your identity and pursue Christ. Pursue Him, your identity in Him, in Him alone. And then you'll be able to respond to the things of this world and of your life. Now, what you need to know is that no one sins, no one, none of us sin because we have to. We sin because we want to. So we, we love things more than, we love things, we love created things more than we love God because we want to. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Sin offers a promise of happiness. We're convinced in our heart that we'll be happier by pursuing these things in this world more so than we would pursue Christ. We're duped by the enemy. That's how he deceives us. Sin offers a promise of happiness. Listen to me. Some of you need to wake up. Sin offers a promise of happiness, and the only way that that promise of happiness is broken the power of sin's promise of happiness is broken by the power of God's promise of happiness. You are insane. You're not thinking clearly if you think you're going to find more satisfaction in a created thing more than the creator. But we all do it. We all do it. That's our struggle. That's the battle. That's the battle within our heart. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. No one loves you like God. Oh my goodness, keep going back to the gospel. He sent his son on a rescue mission for you to redeem you, to rescue you, to, to fill you up. And, and so what we have is that holiness, holiness and happiness are one in the same pursuit. God's glory and our satisfaction are one in the same pursuit. Full devotion to Christ and fullness of life are one and the same pursuit. 
You'll never be happier than when you are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Live in pursuit of eternal life. See, we lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, watch porn, do drugs, drink too much alcohol, watch too much TV, or spend too much time surfing the internet, hang out with the wrong people, don't read our Bible or pray or attend church regularly or get involved in ministry like we should. We pursue the possessions and the positions and the pleasures of this life because we think it will make us happier. And nothing could be further from the truth. That's why he starts off by saying, you want to win this war? You want to win this battle? Live in pursuit of eternal life. Here's the next one. Live in light of God's presence. Live in pursuit of eternal life. Live in light of God's presence. That's verse 13. Verse 13a, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. In the presence of God who gives life to to all things. Uh, put this verse down. I didn't put it on your notes. Psalm 105.4. It's a verse that I go back to daily. And it's, uh, listen to what it says. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. I need that more days than others. But believe me, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence Continually. Seek his presence continually. God invites us to enjoy a continual consciousness of the riches of his beauty and glory. It is a conscious focusing of our mind's attention and heart's affection on God, which is the opposite of just kind of mental coasting. A book that I I take with me from time to time when I go on vacation, it's just kind of one of those books that helps to recalibrate me, kind of gets me back to this place of of really the best thing about the Christian life. The best thing about the Christian life is uh, the presence of God. Did you know that? We have the presence of God. And when was the last time, when was the last time you had an experience of the presence of God, that you just had that sense that I am talking to the creator of the universe and he hears me and he loves me and he's here interacting with me. When was the last time you had that overwhelming sense of the presence of God. I'm not talking about the omnipresence. I'm talking talking about the manifested presence of God in your life, in your heart. He was more real than anything else. And it's really a work of the Holy Spirit uh, that's happening there. And maybe through spiritual disciplines and you're just praying, God, make Christ real to my heart. Make your presence real to my heart. There's a book that I I take uh, from time to time. It's uh, by Brother Lawrence. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. 17th century monk who found incredible delight in the discipline of practicing the presence of God in in the most, when you look at his life story, he found the presence of God in the most menial, mundane, and even menacing times, in really difficult times. He was able to cultivate this this sense of the presence of God in his life. It's It's a really fascinating little book. Real quick read, but I keep going back to that because it helps me to nurture this practicing the presence of God. This is what he says in the book. We should practice God's presence through a continuing conversation with him, that it would be shameful to trade such a relationship for trivial foolishness, and that we should feed our souls on the highest thoughts of God. We can find deep joy, he said, by simply being with the Lord. He goes on and he says, the greatest pains and joys the world has to offer can't compare to the experience of practicing the presence of God. And so, 
live in pursuit of eternal life, live in light of God's presence, if we're going to win the battle, and then live in view of Christ's faithfulness. Live in view of Christ's faithfulness. This is verses 13b to 14. Let me read the whole verse here, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. So it's in the presence of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment, this is for us, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying here? Here's what he's saying. Jesus persevered as he stood up for you bearing your sin and shame. Therefore, you can persevere in standing up for him in your battle against sin and suffering because he stands with you. And one of these days, Jesus will return for the faithful and not the faithless. That's what he's saying in verse 14. Let me read it again. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now imagine this. Imagine what it will be like to stand before him and hear the most amazing words in the universe, to stand before the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you, and to hear the most amazing words in the universe, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25, 23. Just t- take a moment and just imagine that. By the way, you should be, as a believer, daydreaming about that from time to time. You should be swept away into daydreams just about, oh my goodness, Jesus, one of these days I will stand before you. I will see you face to face. We will, I will know as I'm fully known. That's 1 Corinthians 13. I think it's 12 there, somewhere in that chapter. It's a short chapter, but it's a love chapter, and it talks about that. We will know as we are fully known. Imagine the horror of hearing the absolutely worst words in the universe. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. From the only eyes in the universe that matter, to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, or to hear the words, I don't know you, depart from me. Just let that land on you just for a moment. All of us are on one of those two paths. All of us. That's why he ends this book the way he does. It's like, this is pretty hard hitting. Fight, fight, fight the good fight of faith. So, live in pursuit of eternal life, live in light of God's presence, live in view of Christ's faithfulness, live in awe, live in awe of God's greatness. This is, the, this is where we'll end. I'll give you the next couple fill in the blanks you can work on your own. But live in awe of God's greatness. Verses 15 and 16. It's, it's really amazing. This is, I actually put it on a three-by-five card this last week. I was meditating on this. This is really powerful stuff here. Verses 15 and 16. Paul erupts into one of the most majestic, glorious hymns of praise in Scripture. Listen to what he says. We'll dissect it. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign. In other words, he's saying his rule is universal. The king of kings and the Lord of lords, his reign is invincible. No one can match him. Verse 16, who alone has immortality. In other words, he is beyond time from everlasting to everlasting. Who dwells in unapproachable light. He lives in an atmosphere of blinding holiness whom no one has ever seen or can see. In other words, no one can fathom his greatness. To him be honor. He deserves all praise and eternal dominion. He possesses all power. Amen. Let me, um, let me read to you. It's a, it's a quote from a book I read probably within the last year or two. It's from uh, J.D. Greer's book, Not God Enough. Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. And uh, this is what he says. And, and think about the, the church culture that we currently live in. Because that's what he addresses here. He says, I am in part the product of a Christian culture that has fostered and promoted a small domesticated view of God. The Western Christianity in which I have been immersed focuses on the practicality of faith. We present God as the best way to a happy and prosperous life. We show how God is the best explanation for unanswered questions and the best means to the life we desire. Our worship services seem more like pep rallies accompanied by practical tips for living than encounters with the living God who stands beyond time and whose presence is indescribably glorious. These shallow glimpses of God are fine, as long as our faith remains untested, but they are utterly insufficient in the midst of serious questioning or intense suffering. Let me read to you another quote from A.W. Tozer, a book I read a number of years ago. It's a great book. It's on the attributes of God, the knowledge of the holy. This is just part of his preface. This is what he says. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. One last illustration. It's from King David when he was facing all sorts of uh, difficult times in his life. And he actually states in Psalm 27, even if he's surrounded by hundreds of thousands of enemies, he kind of runs the full gamut of, of issues that he could possibly face. Enemies on the outside, even enemies maybe on the inside within his own family, even if my own family abandons me. 
if I have this one thing, is what he says. And if you're familiar with that psalm, it starts off, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I memorized those verses years ago because they were so helpful to me. And, uh, and then particularly this verse four of the text, he says, if I just have this one thing, and what he's talking about is a high view of God. He says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So what does that mean? He can't actually dwell in the house of the Lord. He's talking about practicing the presence of God. If I could have a sense of his presence in my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, if I could just see and savor that he's more desirable and satisfying than all the life can give or suffering and death can take away. If I can just see that, give me a glimpse of this. This is what I'm asking for. Show me your glory, God. That's what he's praying. I need a high view of you because right now I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the difficulties of life and all that surrounds me. Please show me, show me your glory. If I can just gaze at your beauty and inquire in your temple, meditate on all that you are so that it would go from my head down into my heart. I'll be okay. That's what he's saying. I love that. I love that. That's what we need. That's what I pray for week in and week out for us. Show us your glory. I pray that every day for me. God, I need to see your glory. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That's what you need more than anything. That's what you need more than anything. That's the battle. That's the battle that you're up against. Let me give you the last couple fill in the blanks. You can work this out on your own. Live in hope of making eternal investments. We talked a lot about that last week. Live for true wealth. And then live in faithfulness to true doctrine. And it, the book kind of ends with how it started. It started with good, solid, healthy doctrine, which is, uh, we're really struggling with that in our culture today, in our church culture. More and more churches are getting away from really teaching the Bible and teaching good, sound doctrine. He says, live in faithfulness to sound doctrine. Next, next weekend, we begin a brand new teaching series, four weeks, four chapters, 2 Timothy. Chapter one, we'll talk about courage, how to have the courage to face anything in your life and not be ashamed of the gospel. The title of the, the series is Courageous Calling. So in this series, we looked at what, a, what is a healthy church. In that series, that will take us all the way to Easter. It will help us to see what a, what a healthy Christian looks like. What does a healthy Christian look like? Courageous calling, what he's called us to and how we can start with courage in our life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, may we be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Help us to make war. Help us to make war against the sin in our lives by applying these truths so that we can see, savor, and show that you are more desirable and satisfying than anything else in this world. We pray in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.